Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Good morning. Good morning, church. It is good for us to be together on the Lord's Day once again, on this very colorful Lord's Day. Uh, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 9. As we continue our time in the book of Acts, we're going to pick up where we left off uh, three weeks ago now. Um, in the uh, conversion of Saul of Tarsus and the effects of his conversion. We left it in the first part of, chap- of verse 19 of chapter 9. So that's where we're going to pick it up today. The second part of verse 19 in uh, Acts chapter 9. Let me read here God's word for us. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not, is this not the, the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Of those who call upon this name. And has he not come here for this purpose? To bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength. And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus. By proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed. The Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, And sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the reading of God's Word. Here's a question for you this morning, church, as we consider this text. What are The ideal conditions for a church to grow in grace, to be built up in the faith, 
and to multiply in number. What are the ideal conditions? If you were to posit an opinion, this, I think this is the right conditions for the church on the earth while it awaits the Lord Jesus. If these are the ideal conditions for the church to thrive internally in terms of holiness and also grow and multiply in number. What would you say those conditions are? Would you say persecution perhaps is the best and ideal conditions for the church to thrive and and have a true and lasting and visible holiness and also multiply? Or would you say peacetime is the, the right kind of conditions where the church can meet freely and then they're able to grow and catechize one another and grow and multiply in number. What would you say? A number of thinkers have said that the church does better in, ter- in terms of holiness and growth when the church is in times of persecution. Let me read for you a quote I found that I believe actually represents this uh, thinking clearly. This is what uh, this one writer says. He says, No one has ever stopped the church through persecution. Indeed, whenever the world persecutes the church, it just grows even more. Look at the early church. The Romans tried to persecute it out of existence, yet it spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And more recently, the church in China blossomed through the 20th century despite tremendous persecution. Unlike the lazy and complacent Christianity that develops in safe countries, persecution fosters a robust Christianity, confident of its faith and bold in its proclamation. The church thrives best under persecution. End quote. Now while this sounds good and has some factual truths in it, Is it entirely true? Imagine for a moment the practical implications of thinking like this. If this is entirely true, then certainly our prayers should be for persecution. You follow? If this is true, then what we should be praying for is persecution. We should be praying that our government goes the way of North Korea so that we could be healthier Christians. You follow? The text in front of us this morning challenges this idea, this way of thinking very strongly. In the text in front of us, we see that the Lord Jesus has dealt with an enemy of the church who had caused the church to be scattered abroad and to have all kinds of problems. And after the Lord has deals with this enemy of the church, we see peace come to the church and we see remarkable spiritual prosperity. As a result of it. The narrative of chapter 9 here from verse 19 focuses on the effects of Saul's conversion on two entities. It focuses on the effects of Saul's conversion on Saul himself. And then it focuses on the effects of Saul's conversion on the life of the church in Judea and Galilee and the surrounds. There are three aspects in each. We see that Saul, after his conversion, there's three things that come through in the text that we'll, we'll pick at. We see that Saul now preaches Christ. Everyone around him is surprised. 
and people want to kill him. That's his life. If you want to really summarize Saul's life after his conversion, is that he preaches Christ, everyone is surprised, and people want to kill him. And then in the life of the church, after the conversion of Saul, we also see three things. We see that the church had peace, the church was growing in grace, and the church was multiplying in number. The church had peace, the church was growing in grace, and it was multiplying in number. So first, let us consider the first part, the the effects of Saul's conversion on Saul himself. The first thing is that he preaches Christ. In verse 19, we are told that he spent time, some time with the disciples. And what characterized his stay in Damascus among the believers that he had come to kill. You remember what he came here to do? He'd come to, well not kill, he'd come to grab them all and drag them back to Jerusalem and persecute them. And ultimately he wanted them all dead. We, we saw three weeks ago that he was breathing out murderous threats against them. And so, but we're told now that now what characterizes his stay among these people after he was converted is that he immediately proclaims Jesus in the synagogues saying, look at verse 19, he is the son of God. Sorry, verse 20. Saying he is the son of God. Well, this is quite a change of pace. Immediately, we're not told by Luke how long this immediately is. But the singular idea here is that it was quick. You remember last time we saw him being zealous for the ways of his fathers and persecuting the church. And now that he has met Jesus, his entire life has changed. And now he he not only recognizes him as the Son of God, but he proclaims him as such among his old friends. Now I want us to notice the, 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 the significance of this phrase here in verse 20, where he says he is the Son of God. There are a number of remarkable things about this proclamation, that, that Jesus is the Son of God from this particular recent convert. The first thing to note is that in the entire book of Acts, This is the only time where the Lord Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. And the the only time in the entire book of Acts where Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, that comes out of the mouth of the persecutor of the church. There's a, a radical change here. But what does he mean when he uses this title, when he says he is the Son of God, proclaiming him among the Jews? What did the Jews understand that to mean? Because he's going or going to the Jews and proclaiming in the synagogues, he is indeed the Son of God. Well, there is a lot of theology in the phrase the Son of God that we're not going to go into all of that this morning. But let's suffice to say some things. And, and what I want to bring to your attention is what is said by a biblical scholar A.A. A. Harvey where he helpfully categorizes the significance of the title, the Son of God, in the minds of the Jews. And, this, and here are some things. The first, there are at least three things that are significant with regards to this phrase and what they mean, what this phrase means and alludes to with regards to Jesus. First, 
Jesus' sonship of God alludes to his perfect obedience. He is not a son only in name like the children of Adam. He's not a son of God only in name like the children of Adam who don't actually go in line with the character of God. But he is in fact a son of God because he is the very character of God. He takes the father's family name and represents it accurately. Both in Greek and in Hebrew, the word name is the same word for reputation. Carrying the name. And so when he is, when he is called here, the Son of God, it alludes to this is the true Son of God that everything was leading up to. All the people that we were looking to when we, when we, we were looking at David and we were looking at Moses, we are looking at all these heroes. This is the one in whom everything lands. This is the true one. The true Son of God. Second, Jesus' Sonship of God alludes to Him being the ultimate revealer of God. He is the ultimate revealer. Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Father like the Son does. And therefore the Son reveals to people the Father accurately. If you want to know the Father, you look at the Son. He truly and perfectly reveals Him. And thirdly, Jesus being the Son of God means He is the authorized agent of God. A son does his father's work. A son does the job that his father tells him to. A a true son is trusted by his father to accomplish his ends. And that is, and Jesus here is the perfect son. He is the authorized agent of God. Now this had this meaning to the Jews. But what does this mean now to you and I here today as we're here this morning? Are you interested in knowing God? Are you interested in knowing God's business? Being involved in God's work? Are you perhaps, like perhaps your culture, you are longing and waiting for some kind of a deliverer? See, Michael and I were discussing how cultures throughout history are all looking for some kind of a deliverer. So they create theologies and mythologies and all kinds of things because they all need, they're looking, they're longing for a deliverer. You think of our own particular context. Uh, ancestralism, the whole doctrine of ancestralism is this. We understand that we are, we are, there is God out there and then there's life here on earth and life here on earth is hard. And so we need to appeal to an advocate who is closer to God, who's going to open up and light up our way. We're going to appeal to look, <coughs> excuse me, to look to someone who's going to have our name and have our cause in his heart and then talk to God on our behalf to, to, to fix our problems, to cry so we can cry out to them. And so then we create the doctrine of ancestralism. But really what it is, it's a, it's a longing for a deliverer. Don't look to the wrong deliverers. The only true person who actually knows the Father, God, who actually is an agent of the work of God, 
It's His Son. It is the Son. He is the one who actually has the character of the Father. He is the one who actually truly reveals the Father. He is the one who actually does the work of the Father. The deliverance that you are looking for in whatever way, from your own culture, and your own thinking, in your own life, the deliverance that you are longing for, you will find this is the provision for you. The Son. The Son of God is the provision for all your longings for deliverance. Well, that is what Saul now is preaching. Saul is preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. You see also, he says, then look at verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. That Jesus was Israel's deliverer. And people, of course, are rightly surprised. They are surprised and rightly so. They knew him as the persecutor of these Christians there in verse 21. But not, not one of their spokesmen. But Saul now, has, his life has changed entirely. He now views Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the ultimate deliverer, and he's now proclaiming him wherever he goes. And here we must pause and say a few words regarding anyone who's here wondering about their faith. You see, at the very heart of it, your idea of who Jesus Christ is, is the very crucial question of faith. That's the crucial question. If you're wondering about, are you truly converted, like Saul here, have you, has your life truly changed? The first question that you are to ask your mind and look in and ask your heart is, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Paul hated anyone before who preached in this name. And now all he does is preach in this name. Saul not only had a, a change of belief about Christ, but he now had a change of priority. His priority now is to be about this man that he hated. This is why when, when people are baptized, the tradition of the church has always been to ask you this question in different forms depending on the, on the tradition. But the question is, what do you think of Christ? Do you see Him as the only provision for your sin? Do you acknowledge His Lordship over you? If you're wondering whether or not you are a Christian, if you're struggling to know whether or not you're on, the, you're on a different path, the question is not, are you more moral than before? The question is not primarily, are you now a better person? The question is not primarily, are you now a, living a more spiritual lifestyle, motivated to do better? These are all secondary questions. The real primary question is, who do you think of Jesus Christ? Is He the ultimate deliverer? Is He the ultimate Lord? Is my life now to be entirely bent to just saying, Yes, Lord, to Him? And if that is true, then there is a good hope that you are indeed on the right path. That is the primary question. But I also want to note something else here about Saul's preaching. There, there are a number of different words. Look at the different words that are used to describe the preaching of Saul. First we see 
that he, pro- that he proclaimed. You see that word in verse, verse 20? He proclaimed, which is pretty much what I'm doing now. Proclaiming, saying this, standing on this, this is it. But look at the different word that is used in verse 22. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is a different word. It means something entirely different. It's persuasion. See, Paul's preaching wasn't just proclamation. Paul's preaching was also persuading. Let's talk together. Let me try and show this to you. Let me put together the word of God to you. Let me treat you like somebody who can think and prove and open up and walk with you in the scriptures to show you that Jesus is the Christ. Unlike a number of people who pride themselves on bashing people and saying, you're an idiot if you don't understand this, this is what it is, get over it. Paul didn't just do that. He proclaimed when he has to proclaim. But Paul also said, let's talk. Let me persuade you. And then, of course, when he gets to Jerusalem later on, we see that when he gets to Jerusalem, there's other words that are used. You see there in verse 27, uh, 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 sorry, verse 28, it says, He goes in and out among them in Jerusalem, doing what? Preaching boldly in the name of Christ. This is another word entirely. And this word is, it has the same, it's, it's akin to the word proclamation. He's preaching, he's, he's, he's speaking aloud, this is who Christ is. And then, verse 29, look at the different words that are used. And he spoke, he spoke with the Hellenists, and he disputed with them, disputed against them. The Hellenists were coming in and saying, this is what, he is not the Messiah. And then he's disputing against them. He's saying, their position is entirely wrong. Do you see what a a full-orbed, a holistic ministry, even at the beginning of the life of Paul, could look like? A, a, a ministry looks like it is, it, is, it is not just loud proclamation, although then there's a time for that. It is not just discussion, there is a time for that. It is also speaking and disputing against those who, who, who speak against the truth. And that is what Paul, that is the, the features here of Paul's preaching, his early preaching life. And certainly I would say even to us, we need to learn and maybe emulate Paul here because this is not just a description, it's a description of Paul's ministry very early on. But throughout the book of Acts, this is what Paul does. He preaches, he proclaims, he proves, he disputes, he speaks. So we must be those who are, full, who are well-ordered who are studying God's Word and then interacting with others as we try to show them about Christ. We mustn't just be those who just say statements. Here's a statement, live with it, I'm gone, I'm going to leave you like that. We must also interact and prove. Well, that's the first feature of Paul's new life, is that he preaches Christ. The second feature is that everyone around him is surprised. Look at verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? So these guys are, these people are amazed for one reason. 
We know this guy, this, we knew who this guy is, but now his life is completely turned. He's now preaching the thing that he was coming here to try and stop. The second group of people that are surprised is the church. Look at verse 26. When he comes to Jerusalem, when he escapes after they try to kill him there, he escapes and he comes to Jerusalem. And look at what happens in verse 26. Verse 26. And when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now imagine having bouncers at the church, at the door there. Having, you know, who, who's stronger? Maybe Peter and Andrew. You stand at the door and they stand there. And we know that Saul of Tarsus is in the area. So we just, just be alert, tell us, so that we'll run and get out of here, and we'll all scatter. And now here he's coming and saying, Brothers, praise be to God. My brothers and sisters, praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're looking at him, what in the world? And they don't believe him. And you understand why. This is a guy who had just, he killed Stephen, just five minutes ago. He just got papers to go and get them killed over there. To go, to go drag them. And now he's coming here and saying, Oh, my brother, let me shake your hand. I think, they might think perhaps this is a new ploy. He's a spy. He's trying, this is some kind of tactic to try and come and get us. And they're all quite afraid. But look at what Barnabas does. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how in Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. But it's not just that, but it's also this, that they wanted to kill him. People were surprised, and then they wanted to kill him. And wherever he went, they wanted to kill him now. Because now, he is purporting the same thing that, he, that they are against, that the Jews are against. Look at verse 23. When many days had passed... The Jews plotted, this is, in, this is now in Damascus. The Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and, lowered him up and uh, led him through an opening in a wall. And he ran away as a fugitive, running to try and find safety in Jerusalem. And then when he comes to Jerusalem, the, the, the disciples are surprised. He comes in among them after Barnabas speaks on his behalf and look at what happens in verse 29 and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists but they were seeking to kill him they were seeking to kill him and when the brothers learned of this they brought him down to Caesarea they said okay listen Paul okay we're convinced that you're a Christian we can see everybody wants to kill you but now because of you there's going to be more problems coming to us so please just leave and go to Tarsus so they ship him off to Tarsus to, for his safety and for their own safety as a church. Because now there's a, a persona non grata here that the, everybody wants to kill. And so what are we seeing? What is this information about Saul's new life? What, is it, what does it do for us? What's the point of it for us? Well, first we see that the Lord's prediction of what will happen to Saul is now actually happening. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said to Ananias? He said, go. When Ananias was freaking out, I'm not going to go talk to him. I'm not going to go to him. You remember who this is. And then the Lord said to him, no, he's going to be my chosen instrument 
to speak to the Jews. And he's now spoken to the Jews. And I will show him, you remember what he said? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now look at it. Now he's being lowered, being lowered out on basket. Have you ever been lowered on a basket? Running away for your life. That's what's happening to him now. He's running around. He's now suffering. He can't, he can't have a home. He has to run away. What the Lord said would happen is now happening. But the main thing that the, all of this information is to do for us here regarding the life of Paul is designed by Luke for this. To bear witness to the conversion of the last apostle of Christianity. This is what this information is here for. If you're trying to understand what, this, what am I supposed to do with this, this is a witness to the, con- to the call, co- to the conversion, call and commission of the last apostle of Christianity. And I say the last apostle because that is what Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6. Paul says, emphatic, he is the last apostle. He is the last one who witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. He is the last one who is commissioned personally by Jesus to be a foundational teacher of the church at large. No one else after Paul has been personally called by Jesus to be a church-wide authoritative apostle over the church. Friends, this is a doctrinal implication and application for us. No one can claim to have the title of apostle like Paul and Peter and the other apostles have. Why? Because no one else has a written testimony like this for the benefit of the whole church, such that the whole church is convinced and shown the powerful works of Christ through this apostle. You follow? If you meet some, I I say this to you as as a doctrinal application. You must settle this in your minds and have nothing to do with anyone who calls themselves an apostle with a capital A. If someone says to you that they are an apostle, ask them, oh, that's, you're an apostle, that's interesting. Where's your testimony in the Bible? Where's your testimony in the scriptures? So that the whole church for all time can know that you are personally called by Jesus Christ to have authority over the whole church. You see, no one else, the, the reason that we have this, this pedantic pieces of information about Paul is to convince us and bear witness to his apostleship and his call and conversion. He is the last apostle. And we must, we must hold him, him along with the other apostles. And you're going to see now later on, we're not going to see today, but later on we're going to see that everything that Jesus did, a lot of, not everything, sorry, but a lot of the things that Jesus did that verified his ministry, Peter does in the book of Acts, And then Paul does exactly the same things. To verify that Paul is an apostle just like Peter. And Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, Luke puts this information together for us to show us that when when Peter raises somebody from the dead, Paul raises somebody from the dead. When Peter preaches and thousands are saved, Paul preaches and thousands are saved. When Peter is persecuted, Paul is persecuted. All to show that both of them are apostles in that right, following from the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the Apostle Paul. 
That is the effect of Paul's conversion on his own life. Now, what is the effect of Saul's conversion on the church? What's the, what's the effect? Now, what did it do? After he was converted, and then he went off to Tarsus, what did that, what did that bring to the church in Jerusalem and in Galilee and Samaria? Well, look at verse 31 with me. So the church... Through, and, and, and I want you to notice that this is causal. It's, it's viewing everything that just happened before as a cause for what's just about to happen here in verse 31. He says, Therefore, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. Saul's conversion meant that Saul is no longer trying to kill the Christians. And now Saul being taken away from here because of the people that want to kill him leads to peace. Because Jesus kept his promise that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. You have to think about this. Here is Saul trying with all of his might. We saw this. He's belaboring with all of his mouth to destroy the church, entirely kill it, snuff it out. And Jesus has to respond. And so Jesus has responded by preserving his church and saving Saul. The spiritual battle for the existence of the church is, a, is the great theme of chapter 9. A satanic figure was attempting to end the church. And Christ came to, rescue, to her rescue by dealing with that satanic figure. And the way he dealt with the satanic figure is by adding him to the church. And now the church enjoys moment of peace. This moment of peace in the life of the church is not just in the areas that we have heard about. We've heard of Judea and we've heard of Samaria, but now we've even been told for the first time about the church in Galilee. Now the whole, in the whole, in the entire region, because of this conversion, the church is enjoying a moment of peace. Now this moment of peace in the life of the church in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee will not last forever. But the Lord decided in His sovereignty to grant the church at that moment peace. And so what happened when the church had that peace? When the church wasn't running around for their life, meeting in secret, trying, trying to hide and trying to be hiding their identity. What happened as a result of it? Well, we're told here. Look at what, they, what we're told. They had peace and they were being built up. Because, of the, because they had peace, because now they're able to have peace, they were able to be built up in a, in a different way than they were before. They had peace and they're growing up. And notice the phrase in verse 31. It's, it's not saying the church was building itself up. Do you see the, the tense? It's passive. The church was being built up. The Lord captured this moment of peace such that He can use it to, for Him to actively build up the church. This moment of peace was a tool in the hand of the Lord to bring great spiritual prosperity to the church. In his divine plan, the purpose of this peace was to encourage her 
and build her up. And what does it mean that she was being built up? Well, you and I know in the rest of the scriptures that building up is a function of spiritual gifts. So there were people preaching and the church is building up. There were people serving one another and the saints are being built up. There are people using their spiritual gifts that the Lord is giving them and the church building itself up, building one another in love, as Paul says in Romans 12. Because, because the church was enjoying a moment of peace, they were using it and the Lord was, was, was advancing them in building herself up. And look, and look what's, the, what's the result? What's, what, all, what else, what else is, is happening in, in the midst of this being built up? What is the church doing in response to this peace and being built up by the Lord? Verse 31, second part. And in walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The church then, contrary to the man that we heard at the beginning of the sermon, who said that peacetime produces lazy, unholy Christians. Contrary to him, what was happening here is that they were actually walking in the fear of the Lord. Do you see this? This peace brought with it a fear, a fear of the Lord among the people of God. And they walked in the fear of the Lord. The fact that they had peace was not a hindrance to them walking in holiness. The fact that they were not being chased for their lives with spears did not mean that they cannot grow and take seriously dealing with their own sins and encouraging one another towards holiness. The fact that they were relatively at ease, being able to hold their scrolls and talk about Jesus freely, did not mean that they did not take personal holiness seriously. And this is an encouragement for us, yeah? Because we generally, we could say we are the ones, if you look at the church at large throughout the world, we are part of the church at large that is able to meet freely and is able to enjoy peace. And so what do we do with that peace? Do we enjoy sin? What do we do with that peace? Do we, do we allow lethargy to grow in us? What do we do with that peace? With all, the, with all the materials and resources that we are able to enjoy, we are able to have meetings, we are able to have conferences, we are able to go buy big and thick Bibles, yay big, and carry them wherever we go. We can search on the internet, Jesus Christ, and nobody is trying to track our searches and coming into our house. What do we do with that? With that peace? We walk in holiness. We use that peace. Thank you, Lord, for this peace. And we will emulate this church. We will walk in holiness. We will use the peace that you have given us to grow further, to know more about the Lord, to love others, to grow in love, to grow in appreciation of the gospel. See, it's not in many ways. The issue is not the condition. You see, because we've seen the church thriving in persecution. But we also see the church thriving in peacetime. The issue is not the condition. The issue is a people of God whose hearts are rent towards the Lord Jesus Christ in thankfulness for what He has done for them. And they are going to pursue to love Him and build one another up 
and share the gospel with those that they can in their personal spheres. The issue is not the conditions. The issue is the response to the gospel. And not only, <clears throat> and so this is why, if we're thinking about application for us, one main application is how we pray. In First Timothy chapter two, Paul gives us instruction of how churches are to be run, and he says there the first thing he says there in chapter two is that the first thing is that prayers might be done for those who are in civil authority. For what purpose? Why must we be praying every week for different ministers and the judiciary and the legislature, for the people who are governing our country? What is the purpose that we're praying that for? Well, he tells us in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Don't feel guilty because you don't feel like praying for persecution. Okay? You're not supposed to pray for persecution. There's no place where you're told, pray that your life becomes harder because you're a Christian. It's going to happen, but don't pray for it. Don't invite it. It's not, there's not some kind of virtue in inviting it and acting all macho. We pray that we can have a peaceful and quiet life, minding our own business and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. Second thing, second thing in terms of how we pray. 3 John chapter 1, verse 2 says this. This is, this is the Apostle John praying uh, for the people at that church that he's writing to. And this is what he says. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes with your soul. That is not just a prosperity gospel text, text that should only be used by those who believe that God wants to make our lives prosperous and, and healthy. No. This is our text. We pray. We don't pray for hardship. We pray for peace. We pray that things may go well with us. We pray that we might be in good health. And so, that, and so enjoy the good gifts that God gives us. Don't feel guilty and think that maybe you're being influenced by Benny Hinn when you're saying this. When you're praying this. No, this prayer was way before Benny Hinn. The issue here is not that is to say that you are guaranteed to have prosperity and health and all of this. That's all nonsense. The issue though is we can pray that things go well with our lives. We can pray that we, can, that we live in peace. That people can be married without worrying if the wedding is going to be cancelled because somebody's coming with a spear. That people can be married. That we can enjoy love and enjoy good gifts and, 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 and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ without fear of retaliation. Are you following? Are you with me? So in closing, let us pray. And, and thank, first thank God that we, we have peace and pray that the Lord would continue to give us that peace and that all may go well with us. Let's pray together. Our Lord, even as we approach the table, we do thank you for all that you have achieved for us. And specifically this morning, we want to pray 
and thank you and praise your name for the freedom that we have in this corner of the world. We know that many of our brothers and sisters across the earth who, who name your name lose families, lose their lives, are called a shame, shameful names by their families. Our Lord, and we, we ask that you'd strengthen them wherever, wherever they are and give them grace to endure. And we pray for peace for them as well. Pray that those countries that oppress Christians might have change of government such that our brothers and sisters might live in peace and have a quiet life. And we thank you that we have that. And we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to be faithful with it. That we might also be found faithful. Even as the, in, in the new heavens and the new earth, the saints who have gone through all kinds of trials and tribulations, things we cannot even imagine because of the name of Christ, when they're receiving their crowns of righteousness, may we also receive crowns of righteousness because in the time of peace, we followed you as you have told us to. We ask all of this in your precious name, Lord Jesus, knowing that you love to give good things to your people. Amen. 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 We're now about to come to the table.